lesson you gave that night of what you would do and the remembrance that we have of it uh, that we continue to do to this day. And Father, we just uh, worship you and thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. We are going to look today at starting at verse 18 and then we're going to go up through chapter 4 verse 1. And today is uh, talking about what Martin Luther called the household rules. It's a name that's kind of stuck uh, amongst uh, Bible scholars and theologians uh, where several of the writers of the New Testament laid down kind of a series of rules for the running of, of households. As you see up on the picture, Norman Rockwell became famous for painting pictures of the American family, uh, kind of very idealized pictures of what the American family was supposed to look like. Now, as most of us know, families can bring great joy. There's not many things that can bring a greater joy and peace and sense of belonging than family. However, we also know that families are a bit more complex than that. Uh, and, and nothing can really bring too much greater uh, disappointment and pain than when family relationships are, are strained and when, when there are problems. And unfortunately, not all families look like the Norman Rockwell paintings. Well, families were so important in the ancient world that a great many of, of the ancient writers, uh, non-Christian writers, people like even Socrates and Aristotle and Gaius, people like that, actually wrote a great deal about the organization of families. In fact, the Christian writings uh, even are very close in some ways, but there are some significant distinctions, some very subtle things, and we're going to talk about some of those things today. And some people have even suggested that, that you know, the, the writers of the Bible kind of took their, this idea of these household rules from these other ancient writers around them. Uh, it was so important that, you know, it, it occupied a lot of time in the mind of, of the ancient people of how families should run. So what we see here today in Colossians, and this is one of, I think there's six in the New Testament, uh, six different household lists or household rules. They're very similar in a lot of ways. Uh, the, the main two are, are here in Colossians and also in Ephesians. And those two kind of, uh, they're very similar to one another. They are really about the organization and the order of a household. They are difficult for us today because some of the things we read about are, are very kind of jarring to our modern mind, our modern sensibility. It talks about wives submitting. It talks about slavery. Uh, talks about things that we read today and we say, wow, you know, how, how can we talk about those things? But yet they are here in God's Word and we can't just avoid them and go around them, so we're going to, to talk about them today. What does God have to say about the way households are organized? Well, 
We're going to start with verse 18, and this is one of the most controversial of all of them. Verse 18, it says, Wives, submit yourself to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Now again, that's a little jarring to hear in modern day America. But what does it really mean? I, you know, a lot of times when people hear that, they, they, you know, the first fear is that the woman will have a lesser uh, place, that she will be inferior in some way to the man, that that is what is being said here. But that is not really what's being said here. In fact, it's a completely different word than that. Uh, the few considerations we have to make here. One, submit does not mean inferior. Okay, what does the word mean? Let me read something to you from a Bible scholar named David Garland. This is in the NIV application commentary. He says, the verb submit, hypotasso, does not convey some innate inferiority, but is used for a modest, cooperative demeanor that puts others first. It was something expected of all Christians, regardless of their rank and gender. And he gives five different references in the Bible for how that is used of all believers. It's also interesting that that is the same word that is used of Jesus. And you might say, well, it's easy for you to say that, that it doesn't mean in fear, but I can prove it because Jesus is spoken of in the exact same way in regards to the Father. Now, we know that Jesus and the Father are not uh, Jesus is not inferior to the Father. They are equal. In fact, that has always been the, the, the orthodox uh, teaching of, of Christianity is that Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit are co-eternal and co-equal. They are of the same essence. They are the same value. There is no inferiority at all. But yet it says that Jesus submits to the Father, and it uses this, this exact same word here. That he does the Father's will. It's, it's a voluntary act on the part of two equals where one says to the other, I will follow you. Kind of in a modern day, you know, our modern day language, it would be kind of like saying to someone, hey, I'll follow your lead on this one. That's the idea. It's not a, an idea of inferiority. It's the idea of two equals where one says, I will follow you. And that's what God is asking here of wives. You notice that he does not also say obey. It, it, it's, a, it's a different word. It's a different term. Obey is a much stronger sense. Submit is something that the wife must decide herself to do. It, it, it is, is something that God asks her to do, but then she must make the decision that she will do this. It cannot be forced. The idea of obey is to listen to what I tell you. The idea of submit is, look, you're my equal, but voluntarily follow my lead. So it's a very different concept. They're similar, very similar terms, but they're very slightly, uh, slightly different uh, in the way that they're, they're, they're used here. It's a voluntary act on the part of the wife. It's interesting that in the ancient world, 
women were often held in very low esteem. You know, it's really everyone that's addressed here in some way or another were held in low esteem in the ancient world. Women, children, and slaves were all seen as inferior. And many of the ancient writers saw them as incapable of being moral creatures, not able to make you know, moral choices and to do the right thing. It's remarkable in many ways, and, and, and we'll see this more as we go on this morning, uh, a lot of what Paul is doing here is kind of uh, uh, silently and slyly subversive. Uh, you know, he is speaking to women and to children and to slaves as morally capable beings. Uh, not a way that they were seen in their, in their ancient world, but yet these letters would have been read in a church, you know, to a, a, an audience of people. That would include fathers, mothers, children, slaves, household slaves would have all been in the church together at the same time. And in this, Paul addresses each one of them. And here he addresses women, and he is saying to women, I, I want you to voluntarily do this, to submit yourself to your husband. That is an act of a moral being. He is, is, is essentially saying to you, to her, I know you can do this. You are capable of, of your own moral actions, your own moral decisions, and you, I want you to voluntarily do this. They are ethically responsible partners. Another thing that we're going to see here is that Paul, even though he is addressing the wife here and he is saying, submit to your husband, he also is going to address the husband. And he's going to have actually a much harder role for the husband to play in the household. We'll talk about that here in a minute. One of the great differences between the, the, the biblical household rules and the, the household rules of the ancient world written by people like Aristotle is the fact that the Bible household rules stress obeying God. They, they have a, a Christological element to them. They, the, the, the following and pleasing of, of Jesus Christ. And God says here to the wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. It says the Lord has decided that this is right. It is not a, an idea of inferiority. It is an idea of positions within a household, of order, of how a house is supposed to operate. Just like God the Father and God and the Son, excuse me, were not unequal but had different roles. That is the picture that God is painting here of two different equal people within a household playing two different roles where the one must then say to the other voluntarily, look, I'll follow your lead here. It's fitting in the Lord. Now, there's some things that it does not mean that, unfortunately, it has been taken to mean over the years by some people. 
It does not mean submit to sin. Again, this is not the word obey. It is not saying, you know, that you have to do everything you're told. If your husband says to you, go out and rob a bank, you should not do it and you're under no obligation to do it. The husband is never to ask the wife to do something that would break God's word or would not be pleasing to the Lord. And if the husband asks that, the wife is not under the obligation to do that. It cannot be forced. The idea of I'm going to make my wife obey me is an unbiblical idea. God says, wives, submit. Do it voluntarily. This is what I want of you. The husband can't say to the wife, look, you're going to do what I want you to do. And I'm going to make you do it. The idea of punishing a wife in order to enforce her submission is also ungodly. It is not biblical. God asked her for her submission. You cannot, men, you cannot force it. That is not how God wants the household to work. And we'll see that, that more here in a second when we, when we talk about what he wants of the men. So you're not in a position to punish your wife if she doesn't do what you want her to do. Wives, you are asked to submit yourself to your husbands because that is the the role that God has chosen for the husband and the wife to play in the marriage. The whole purpose of these household rules is that the house would be ordered and safe and, and, and things would run in kind of the way the pictures are, are, look instead of the way, unfortunately, houses a lot of times run. That there wouldn't be the contention, there wouldn't be the anger, there wouldn't be the fighting. That's not what is supposed to be there. And so both parties, the husband and the wife, are asked to behave themselves in certain roles and to do them in godly ways. Now, obviously, any smart husband, and hopefully that's what you are, you know, guys, you know, hopefully that's what you are, any smart husband is going to have a partnership with his wife. They are going to talk, they are going to, to ask uh, advice from one another and talk about how they should handle a situation. Every husband in here knows that your wife is better than you at some things. You are better at some, she is better at some, and so you need to cooperate uh, to figure out how, you know, how you're going to do things and what, what you're going to do. You're a partnership. The God's vision within that partnership is that the wife is to submit to the husband of her own free will. Now, what does God have to say to husbands? Look at verse 19. It says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now one of the interesting things about the Colossian household rules is it is very, um, it's kind of a pared down version of the household rules. Ephesians goes into much more detail on, on many of these things here. But the idea of love within a family was not all that common a thing in the ancient world. 
Now, yes, there were loving households. There were husbands and wives that loved one another dearly. There's no doubt about that. But that was not an expectation in the ancient world. That was more, as one commentator I read said, that was more of a happy accident when that happened. Oftentimes, marriages were arranged. Uh, they, They were arranged in order to... You know, basically, they were seen as ways to bring children into the world and raise children. And if the husband and the wife were happy in the marriage, great. That was that was a, a wonderful, you know, kind of a, a chance occurrence. But that was not what was expected. That was not what even a husband and wife walked into a marriage expecting to find. I'm sure they hoped for it, but they didn't necessarily expect to find it. But God takes that and He turns it on its ear and He says, husbands, love your wives. In the list in Ephesians, He takes it further and He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, His bride. And how did He love the church? He gave Himself for it. How did He give? He died. He humbled himself to the point of death for us, his bride, his church. And that's the way husbands are told to love their wives. Love your wives sacrificially. Love your wives humbly. Love your wives thinking of their needs ahead of your own. Considering them first before you consider yourself. That's how husbands are told to love their wives. In fact, later on in Ephesians, you know, Paul tells them it, it, the man who, who loves his wife is loving his own flesh because the two, when they're married, become one. He says, you are loving yourself if you're loving your wife. And what man ever hated himself, Paul says. Husbands, you have a much harder job You are supposed to love your wife sacrificially. Think of her first before you think of yourself. Think of her needs before you think of your own. Always live your life with her in mind. As many commentators pointed out that if husbands would actually do that, the wife's job of submitting would not be all that difficult, would it? Love the way the one guy put it. He said, the, the wife is supposed to submit to the husband's love, not his tyranny. That's how God envisions it working. Two equal people in concert with one another with two different roles, living lives of love and submission to each other. That's how an ordered household is supposed to be. Not exercising your rights, but your love. Notice it says, do not be harsh with them. Do not be bitter with them. Do not create uh, an atmosphere that embitters your wife. Again, the whole idea of trying to force her submission is not one that's found in Scripture. That's not the idea here. 
It's an idea of loving her so much that she voluntarily submits herself to you. It's a picture of harmony, not conflict. In fact, contentiousness is something that God never wants. And He warns us against over and over. Unfortunately, many households are marked more by the contention than they are by the love that takes place within the household. And I know, unfortunately, in a group this size, that's going to probably reflect some of you. And that truly is a sad thing, and that is not how God means for family to be. He moves on to the children. He says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Notice that the command there is to obey. It shows a difference in status. The children, though they are equal as human beings, are not equal in status because of their age. So it's a stronger command. It's children obey your parents in everything. Now again, the child is never to do something that would not please God. So same thing like, you know, dad goes out and says, hey, go, go rob a bank. Nuh-uh. You don't have to follow that command. But on, it kind of... The picture here is that Christian lives are to be different than the lives of the world around them. So there's an assumption that's made in these passages, in these household rules, that the father and mother are going to love the children and want what's best for the children. So they're not going to ask them to do something that would be immoral, that would break God's law, that would get them in trouble, okay? So they're told to obey their parents in all things, for this pleases the Lord. Now, children in the ancient world were little more than property. Now, that's difficult for us to think that way because we live in a world where children, where parents dote on children. And it's, it's interesting, one of the great differences between you know, how Israel handled itself and the world around it is that it, Israelite parents did dote on their children. They loved them and, 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 and really uh, you know, tried to do everything they could for their children. But you have to understand not all of the ancient world was like that. If you read excerpts of some of the writings of, of, of some of the, the ancient Greek and Roman philosophers, people that we hold in very high esteem for, for their philosophy, and you read their thoughts on the family and their thoughts on children, it is very disturbing to read. Children were not much more than property. The father in particular had complete control over the life of his child, and that went on into the adulthood of the child. The father had control of the child's life until the father gave the child the freedom to run his own life or until the father died. He could even determine whether the child lived or died. That was all in the hand of the father. The ancient world was often very tough on women and children 
and slaves. That's part of what the kind of silently subversive role that Paul plays in the writing of this list. It's to give value to them. Think about what he's doing here. This is, you know, a church is, is meeting and the pastor is getting up and reading this letter from Paul to the church at Colossae. And in that church there are children sitting. And they are hearing themselves being spoken to directly through that letter by the Apostle Paul and through the Holy Spirit by God. And that is saying that the children that are sitting there listening to that are, again, morally responsible human beings. They are to be valued. It would have been almost unheard of in the ancient world for children to be addressed publicly like that. They just were not seen of the value that you would even speak to them in public like that. But here we see Paul address them directly. And he dresses them as moral beings. And he says, children, obey. Obey because it pleases the Lord. Obey your parents because it pleases God when you do that. You are capable of making moral choices to please God. So that is what I want you to do, Paul says. Do it for the Lord. It, it, you know, as I said, it assumes the parents' love for them. The next thing he does in verse 21 is he directly speaks to the father. Because like I said, the father had complete control over the lives of his children. Now, the mother is assumed in here also. that you know, He's speaking to parents, but he's particularly speaking to, to, to fathers. Because the father was in such a role that he could make the, the life of the child very, very difficult. So he is being spoken to specifically here by Paul. In verse 21, he says, Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Don't embitter them. Some of you might have, don't, don't, don't cause, the, you know, bring them to wrath. There's, there's you know, several different translations of it, but the father was not to embitter his children. He had control of their lives, but he was to use that control out of love and out of a care for them instead of causing them to suffer. Again, let me read something from the New American Commentary in regards to this. It says, the word embitter occurs only one other time in Scripture, in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 2. This speaks of an irritation and even a nagging. Parents embitter children by constantly picking at them, perhaps refusing to acknowledge their efforts. The fact that children might become discouraged suggests that the parents too easily remind the children that they were not good enough. This activity had no place in the Christian home. If correction were needed, it should have been toward the behavior of the child, not the child's personhood, and it should have been enforced quickly. Discipline was not to be prolonged so that the nagging occurred. 
The reason for the command was to avoid discouragement. Constant nagging produces a situation where children are discouraged either because they cannot please those they love or because they feel they are, no, uh, are of no worth to anybody. That kind of behavior was never supposed to exist within the home. Fortunately, we know in, in the way that people are, and the fallenness that we all have, that that does not always take place, does it? Sometimes that kind of behavior is what occurs. Anyone who has ever coached or, or been involved with, uh, with trying to teach like you know, young children things, you've seen the behavior of parents, haven't you? I see a lot of you sitting there shaking your heads and smiling. You've experienced it. The parent who was never able to do those things when they were a child and now they want to live vicariously through the life of their child. Constantly pushing, constantly nagging, constantly driving the child to do the things that the parent really wants to do but was never able to do. It is not a pretty picture. Quite often it leads to the embitterment and the discouragement of those children. Children are to obey, but parents and particularly fathers are supposed to always have their best in mind. Even when you discipline them, even when you try to encourage them and help them, do it in such a way that it truly would encourage them and not turn them away. That's what Paul's saying here. Now we approach verses 22 through 25, one of the most difficult passages that we can approach in our modern context, and that is speaking of slavery. Slavery was a very real thing in the ancient world. I read one number that said in Rome probably as many as 70% of everyone in the Roman Empire was a slave. That's staggering to think about. That's how entrenched slavery was in the ancient world. Many doubters look at this passage and others like it and they say, well, why didn't Paul just come out and denounce it and tell slaves to run away or rebel? Why, you know, why didn't he try to put an end to it? Problem was, the church was a very small community within that larger Roman world and there's really nothing they could do to stop it. It was an impossibility. As one commentator put it, it was part of the warp and woof of life in the ancient world. It was built right into society. But you see a great many things in Scripture and even in this passage that kind of slyly suggest how much Paul and the other biblical writers had a distaste for the institution. He encouraged every slave who could find a way to buy their own freedom to do it. 
and to let no one enslave you if you could help it. And then he tried to do some things that I think we'll see here that subtly undermined the institution. And though nothing really could be done in Paul's day, many of the teachings in the Bible are the very things that brought about the end of slavery many, many years later. He sowed the seeds of discord with slavery that would one day lead to its downfall. Let's take a look at what Paul has to say here. Look at verses 22 and 23. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eyes is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work it with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Now Paul tells them, obey. Obey your masters, your human masters. But you notice how he kind of subtly gets in there who the real master is? And who they really should be working for? There's nothing he could do about the situation they were in, but think of how horrible it would be to be a slave. How depressing every day would be to know that you had to go serve someone who saw you as nothing more than than just a piece of property. So Paul here goes to the attitude of the person themselves, and he says, do it for the Lord. Do it thinking of me. Obey. And do it sincerely. But as you do your work, think about me. Think about your true master. Think of serving me. Rearrange the way that you think to put your mind on serving me and not serving man. Nothing can be done about the situation you're in right now, but you can focus your mind on me and serve me instead. You'll notice how many times over the course of these four verses Paul says that to them. Verse 24, he says something that's just groundbreaking for the world of their day. And so, again, subtly subversive. Uh, it, it's, it's really wonderful. He says, since you know, he's, t- he's, you know, he's told them, uh, ser- serve your, your human masters, but really work for me. Work for the Lord. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the, the Lord as a reward, it is Christ you are serving. The very thought in the ancient world of a slave inheriting was unheard of. A master could give them freedom, but they were not legally able to inherit. Even though they were part of the household, they could not, you know, they they were considered, you know, something that was owned. They were not, you know, they were not able to, to inherit things. And yet Paul says here to them, he says, when you serve your earthly masters, there's nothing you can do about that, so serve them willingly. Give them a good effort, but do it for me. 
thinking of me, remembering you're serving the Lord, and I'll, I'll reward you. I have an inheritance for you. Now, I want you to think about what that would be like sitting in that church as the pastor of the church at Colossae stands up and reads that. As there's masters sitting there and there's also slaves sitting there in that church. And Paul speaks directly to them and says, you have an inheritance from the Lord. Ooh. But there's a lot of masters that got real uncomfortable in that church service. It was a completely different way that the world of their day saw slaves. Think about the things that are being assumed here. Slaves are moral beings that can choose to obey or not obey. They can choose to work in a way that it pleases God. That God loves them and cares about them and they have a place in His world. And He, in fact, will reward them and has an inheritance for them when this life is over. That their real masters are not their earthly masters, but their master in heaven. Which you're about to see Him say the same thing to the masters. Which in kind of a, a brilliant, kind of backhanded way puts them in exactly the same position. Paul's undercutting the moral pinnings of a despicable institution. The one that he can't do anything to tear down in his day, but he can certainly start weakening the pillars. Verse 25, it's interesting because notice he says here, anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favoritism. Now he's still speaking here to slaves. He's telling them don't do wrong. But notice what he's just said here at the end of that verse. There will be no favoritism with God. Again, how would you like to be the master sitting in that church service who thought you were superior to your slave and all of a sudden Paul is saying, yep, slaves obey but there's no favoritism in God's world. He doesn't see one as more valued than the other. And you, if you serve me well, will get an inheritance in heaven just like everybody else. And then Paul closes out by speaking to the masters. He doesn't say a lot. It's one verse. But it's very pointed what he says. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Give your slaves what is right and what is fair. Now, in the ancient world, the idea of fairness to a slave was absolutely unheard of. In fact, when you read some of the things that, like, say, for instance, Aristotle, 
wrote about slaves. It was not possible to be fair to something that belonged to you. That was the language. That's the way slaves were seen in the ancient world. So what Paul is saying here is absolutely astonishing. You know, that pastor of Colossae standing there reading that letter to that church saying, be fair. Treat them with fairness. Do what is right to them. What's that imply? That they have worth? That they are your equal? That they are human beings just like you? See, once people start thinking like that, it's pretty hard to hold on to the institutions like slavery. And that's what ultimately led to its end. People rightly realized, Christians rightly realized that everyone was created in the image of God. There was no superior and inferior. And if that was the case, they could not hold on to those institutions any longer. Do what is right and fair. Provide them with what is right and fair. Give to them. Meet their needs. Do what is right. Treat them with fairness. Because you know that you also have a master in heaven. You may be the earthly master But there's a master in heaven that's over you. And he is the one who will reward or punish depending on how people have lived their lives. Always be reminded of that. Paul drives home that point to them. The household rules are tough to read. And they are jarring to our modern ear and our modern mind. There's much there that is very different than the way society works today. Some of these things are not even directly applicable today. We don't have household slaves. That, that, That institution doesn't exist, at least in America today. There's still some places, unfortunately, it does, but it doesn't exist here, thankfully. Much has changed, some for the better. Unfortunately, not everything changes for the better. Families are often still dysfunctional and filled with anger and discord. But that's not how God ever meant them to be. And there were much that happened in the ancient world that God did not like, but there's very little the church, early church could do to change some of it. That God built in the recipe for change, if you will, to what He said in His Word. Kind of laid the, the, the building blocks for what would come later. But in the meantime, the purpose was that the household should run in an orderly, loving, peaceful fashion. That's what God wanted to say to the people sitting in those churches. Your households should be places of safety and peace. And if it's a Christian household, it should be a place where people can find Christ and grow in their faith. That's what Paul wanted. 
within those early households. And he speaks to them here about the order in the household. Now what does it say to us today? Even though there are many different roles and different ways of looking at things today than there were back then. Well, it still tells us that households should be run in an orderly, peaceful fashion. That they should be safe places and places where people can grow. It's still the way the household is to be. Husbands are still supposed to love their wives in sacrificial ways. Wives are still to choose to submit to their husband and to play the, out the role of husband and wife inside the household. Children are still to obey their parents, and parents are still to love their children and not cause problems for their children and try to live out their lives vicariously through their children to embitter them. That is not how it's supposed to work in a household. The peaceful scenes in those Norman Rockwell paintings that appeared for nearly 50 years in the Saturday Evening Post that is an idyllic scene, and that idealism would be wonderful if that's what existed in every household. And it is the kind of peace that God wants in a household. Peace and order, consideration of others, thinking of the other members of the household first before you think of yourself. doing everything that you do, even within the household, to serve God and be pleasing to God. See, households are one of the great provers of the Christian life. Most people can be pre pretend to be anything publicly, but what you are behind closed doors often speaks of who you really are. God means for true Christian community and growth to take place within households. Service of God takes place within the household. That's how it's supposed to work. So in closing, I just want us to think about our households, I want us to think about our experiences. Maybe your experience here was very different from that. Maybe you grew up in a very difficult household, a very dysfunctional household. And if you have, that's probably largely shaped your life. It's not how God ever wanted a household to be. But where you are at now, wherever you're at, Whatever your household is like, what God wants it to be is that place where godliness can take place, where godliness is lived out, where there's order and peace and stability and consideration. That's what a house is to be. If your house is not that, it can be that, but you have to put in the willingness and the effort to make that the case. You have to reach out to God and ask Him for the help to do that. And yes, I know it takes two. Maybe some of you are here and you're in a household where you want to do that, but a, a partner does not.
All you can do is live for the Lord on your part. Do the things God has called you to do. Pray for the partner. Pray for the household. Pray for the children. Ask God to bring the peace and the consideration and the love that He wants to be in that household. If you're here and that is the way your household is, then we thank God for you. Keep it up. Keep up the good work. Never grow tired of good work. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for Your Word, even though at times it's very difficult. We run into things that we're not sure how to deal with. Things that are very foreign to us and and ask us things that seem out of our realm. Speak to us of, of things that are not comfortable for us to talk about. And Father, even as we think of those things and see those things, we are to listen to Your Word. We're to read it and study it and take it to heart. At the bottom of everything, You still want us to live godly lives. You want us to live peaceable lives, ordered lives. You want our households to be a place where people can grow and thrive in their faith. And so, Father, I pray for each and every person here. I I don't know what every situation is. I, I don't know what's going on in their hearts or in their households. But you do, Father. And for each and every one here, I I pray that you would speak to their hearts today and you would bring the changes that must take place in their lives. Father, encourage them and strengthen them. Hold them up. Help them to play out the roles that they have in their household and do it all for you, the true master, to keep you always in mind. I just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Die.